Welcome to another episode of the American Thoracic Society's Breathe Easy podcast. My name is Megan Cyrilis. I am a pulmonary and critical care fellow from the University of Utah with an interest in pulmonary vascular disease. My goal is to develop and broadcast more regular episodes focused on pulmonary hypertension using expert interviews to bring you practice-changing knowledge on this complex topic. So without further ado, let's dive into today's discussion. In March 2019, the American College of Chest Physicians published an updated guideline focused on therapy for pulmonary arterial hypertension, or PAH, in adults. Helping us dissect this important update are several members of the guideline committee, Drs. James Klinger, Greg Elliott, Deborah Levine, and David Badish. Hi, everyone. Hi. Would you each please tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, and your particular interest in pulmonary hypertension? Start with Dr. Klinger. Hello, my name is James Klinger. I'm a uh, pulmonary physician at Rhode Island Hospital and a professor of medicine at Brown University. I run the uh, Pulmonary Hypertension Center here at Rhode Island Hospital. Hi, I'm Greg Elliott. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Utah, and I'm based at the Pulmonary Hypertension Care Center at Intermountain Medical Center in Murray, Utah. I really began my pulmonary arterial hypertension journey when it was primary pulmonary hypertension in the 1980s as an investigator in the NIH registry. My academic work is in clinical trials and translational research. I've been interested in the biology and genetics of pulmonary hypertension for a long time. Hi, I'm Debbie Levine. I'm from the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, and I'm the medical director of lung transplant and the director of pulmonary uh, vascular disease at our center and our hospital. Hi, I'm David Badish. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado, and I've been uh, doing clinical trials in the field, helping hopefully to develop new therapies. Um, I'm the director of the pulmonary hypertension program at the University of Colorado. Wonderful. Thank you all for that introduction. We're lucky to have you all joining us. So we'll just jump right in. Dr. Badish, as one of the co-chairs of the committee, do you think you could give us a bit of background about the guidelines and how they were developed? So yes, um, you know, this I believe is like the fourth iteration of the uh, treatment guidelines for pulmonary arterial hypertension. And uh, the folks on the call here actually proposed to uh, the American College of Chest Physicians that an update uh, be generated to incorporate um, recently available evidence. Um, and uh, so it's an update to the 2014 iteration of the uh, guidelines. The uh, panel conducted an updated uh, systematic review to identify studies published after those included in that 2014 guideline. A systematic literature search was conducted using Medline uh, via PubMed and the Cochrane Library and the quality of the body of evidence was assessed for each critical or important outcome of interest using the uh, grading of recommendations assessment uh, development and evaluation approach that's also known as the GRADE approach. Graded recommendations and ungraded consensus-based statements were developed and voted on using a modified Delphi technique to achieve consensus. And I, I think it's important to note that the guidelines were developed to be fairly strictly evidence-based and uh, with uh, great attention to the avoidance of any uh, conflict of interest. So the all panel members uh, were reviewed for potential conflicts of interest by the ACCP's uh, Professional Standards Committee. And uh, nominees who were found to have no uh, substantial conflicts were approved, whereas nominees uh, with either potential intellectual or financial conflicts of interest that were manageable were approved uh, with management. Uh, 
I personally actually fall into that latter group where I had potential uh, conflicts and uh, they've been uh, managed under the uh, ACCP or CHESS standards. Panelists uh, who were approved with management were prohibited from drafting and voting on recommendations uh, in which they had substantial uh, potential conflicts of interest, and that again in included myself. And then additionally, in situations where one of the co-chairs had a conflict, preventing engagement based on the uh, management terms, an unconflicted uh, co-chair led the panel discussion, and that was Debbie Levine, who's with us today. And I think I'll leave the methods at that. The full methods are in the, uh, the manuscript itself to be referred to there. Great. Thank you. That's a nice introduction. One question I would have would be, what were the specific questions that the guidelines were trying to address? seems from reading them that the PICO format was strictly adhered to, and, and what were the the components that made that up? Key clinical questions were developed uh, using the population intervention comparator outcome format. That's known as the PICO format. We actually uh, focused on several key questions and ended up deciding upon outcomes measurements um, that could be uh, perhaps compared to some degree across studies. Um, and largely, we focused on uh, the six-minute walk as a an outcomes assessment that has been commonly used in clinical trials. Um, we did have some uh, discussion around whether or not we could use composite uh, endpoints and ultimately decided that those were more challenging, it decided not to do that, um, and, and proceeded largely with changes in six-minute walk, other individual uh, relatively hard outcomes assessments. Great. That was very informative. Thank you. Many listeners have probably read or at least heard of the European guidelines that were published in 2015. Would you say there are any big differences regarding how the guidelines were developed that we should be aware of? You know, I, I would say that this, having participated in a number of um, kind of guidelines-like statements or consensus statements and things, I believe that the methodology used here uh, was among the most rigorous. Um, and that, that results, I think, in some uh, um, fairly limited or specific uh, recommendations. Um, uh, but I think that it, it also results in us being able to feel fairly confident in the fact that uh, the guidelines were evidence-based and, and where the evidence wasn't available, that it was a, uh, you know, a uh, fairly strict consensus among the group. Uh, the methodology, in other words, I think was quite sound. Great. Did any of the other panel members have anything to add regards to the methodology for the guideline development? Uh, Megan, I would just underline what Dave said, which is the, the rigorous methodology leads to a number of the recommendations being ungraded and consensus-based statements. But I think for the you know, practicing and academic physician, um, it's important to understand that they have a strong foundation in, in practice and the evidence that we have. And, it, and so I wouldn't discount ungraded consensus-based statements. That goes to the rigor of the methodology that was used to develop these guidelines. That's right. And, Megan, I would just add the um, American College of Chess Physicians has got a committee on professional guideline development. 
uh, and that committee sets a format as how um, clinical evidence is studied. And most of those uh, analyses are done for diseases for which we have uh, considerably more information, uh, things like uh, pulmonary embolism or venous thromboembolism, uh, lung cancer, COPD. Uh, and so for this particular review, we had to use the same format to judge an area where there's uh, much fewer studies uh, and most of the studies had many fewer patients than some larger studies. So as a result, there are some limitations into what we're able to do, but at the same time, it makes sure that the evidence base for treating pulmonary hypertension has gone through the same rigor and the same methodology that the guidelines that have been developed for other diseases have had to go through. Absolutely. Thank you. So, Dr. Klinger, the guidelines are full of important information, but for the more general pulmonary and critical care audience, what would you say are the most important messages that you would emphasize? And along with that, are there any big changes that you have recognized from the prior guidelines? Let me uh, answer your first question first. Um, the, the primary message of the guidelines is that patients with pulmonary hypertension should be treated primarily based on the severity of their disease. Uh, and all of the recommendations that are in the guidelines, uh, and I think there's about 64 that target specifically pharmacologic therapy, are based on the overall clinical status of the patient. And the clinical status is usually pegged to the New York Heart Association or the World Health Organization functional class. And there's four categories for physicians that aren't familiar with this, but essentially the first category is people who have very few symptoms. A functional class two is people that have symptoms with regular activity, Functional class three are patients that have symptoms with less than ordinary activity, and functional class four are really people that are very disabled or have symptoms with any activity at all. Uh, and the guidelines are set up as you go through them. The first recommendations are for people on the lower classes of functional class activity, and then they follow to the most severe. But when you get to the most severe of people in functional class four, and in people who are in functional class three with signs of rapidly progressive disease or biomarkers or other risk factors that are associated with decreased prognosis, we really recommend in those patients that they be treated with the parental prostacyclin. And then as you back down from there, patients who are in functional class two or functional class three that are felt to be a little bit more stable or perhaps earlier in their disease, the recommendation is that they be treated up front with a combination of ambrosentin or tadalafil. And then for patients who are uncomfortable taking combination therapy or for any reason don't feel the com uh, combination therapy is necessary, either the patient or the physician, then we recommend monotherapy with any of the presently approved categories of uh, pharmacological therapy for pulmonary hypertension, which includes the phosphodiesterase inhibitors, the endothelial receptor antagonists, the soluble monocyclase stimulators, and some of the prostacyclins. And then the um, final recommendations have to do with a pad of care, a supervised exercise, which we think is important in patients with pulmonary hypertension, and regular vaccination against influenza and pneumococcal vaccine. And then for your second question, the, the primary difference, I think, in this update compared to the previous guidelines that have been published by the ACCP and by other organizations is now this idea of upfront combination therapy with two agents uh, has really gained a, a forefront as the primary a way of treating patients with pulmonary hypertension. This is based primarily on the data that came out of one large randomized placebo-controlled study uh, looking at the combination of tadalafil and ambrosentin versus either tadalafil alone or ambrosentin alone. That was an excellent summary. Thank you. Summarizing what you've said, it sounds likely we want to use functional class to decide how to treat these patients, and it'll be parenteral, prosthenoid for the more severely ill patients, and then a combination upfront therapy for the functional class one and two. 
That's right. I, you know, I think that we've, what we've seen in this field is the growth of a large number of orally active medications that have made it much easier for many patients with pulmonary hypertension to treat their disease effectively. Uh, but there's general concern that as patients get sicker, that they not wait before they be started on uh, parental prostacyclin therapy because we still feel this is the most efficacious therapy and in many cases uh, is really uh, important to, to halt disease progression. Okay. So next I'd like to discuss what things were not addressed in the guideline. Dr. Levine, do you think you could give us some insight into what subjects pertaining to diagnosis and treatment were omitted and perhaps why you think the committee decided to not include them in the recommendations? Yes, thanks, Megan. I think the idea of omission probably wasn't reason that there weren't topics that were uh, fully covered. I think uh, more that they were not in the purview of the guideline document. And there are actually, for sure, many topics and issues over the course of putting these guidelines together that we all on the committees would have loved to cover. We were not able to include all of those because either, number one, in terms of pharmacological management issues, there was either not enough evidence to present or in other cases, specific trials hadn't been completed yet prior to the guidelines being published. And in number two, um, in other cases of non-pharmacological management, I think um, Jim talked about it a little bit, in terms of non-pharmacological management or diagnostics, uh, topics were just not part of the goal of the document. Although the set of guidelines was really focused mainly on pharmacological management of group 1PH or PAH, we as a committee still try to include as much as possible other topics imperative to this population, and they kind of go hand in hand. So there's a large amount of discussion on many of these topics, even if we weren't able to get all of these thoughts onto the review. So, for example, in the case of management, we did discuss, although briefly, how to manage those patients who progress in their disease despite all of the use of different types of medical therapy that were available, patients who are class three or class four. And as an example, we touched on the importance of referral and timing of transplant, but were not able to really take a deep dive into this area, which was, it's not a pharmacological therapy. And the same is true for other things like palliative care, caregiver support, exercise therapy, including pulmonary rehab, and we touched on it, but it wasn't really delved into. The document also did not look beyond group 1 pH. So groups 2 through 5 pH, we all know, we all see these patients, everyone who sees pH patients in community or academic centers have these patients in their clinics and knows that these patients all require management guidance. But again, this was one of the areas that we did not cover in this document, but, but likely needs to be you know, involved in, in future uh, guidelines. Another area we all would have really loved to cover, I think, more was to discuss specific diagnostics and monitoring some of the special testing and really of importance risk assessment. For example, when do we do and who do we perform genetic testing on and how do we counsel these patients and their families? In terms of other diagnostics, we had multiple discussions on many occasions on risk assessments. And although we discussed it. We gave many suggestions and referenced our available tools in our community. We just weren't able to delve into all of the specifics. The other thing we did not look specifically at was specific special populations. In fact, pediatrics was actually was excluded from this document. 
And then when you look at another population on the other end of the spectrum, we did not have enough evidence to pull out specific therapy recommendations on, on elderly population, which Dave led, uh, uh, Dave and Jim led a great editorial after the guidelines were published of why we weren't able to look specifically at, at that population. So these are all areas that would be very well suited to put into a broader guideline in the future. And um, But areas we all did discuss, and really there were multiple calls on, and it just was not within the time period or the purview of the document. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It seems like a huge topic to try and get all of that information into one guideline. Any recommendations on what other resources our listeners could look to to get more information on these topics, such as diagnosis or lung transplant or the, the non-group one pulmonary hypertension? Oh, oh absolutely. I think, I think when you look at all the different guidelines, whether it be the, the guidelines from ERJ in 2015, the European guidelines, this covers many of these areas as well as the sixth World Symposium pH guideline document, which actually has very up-to-date discussions on all of the areas above that we might not have been able to get to because of our focus on just the pharmacological management of PAH. Actually, there's also working groups looking in from the transplant societies, both the International Society of Transplant as well as cardiology uh, societies documents as well. Actually, the Pulmonary Hypertension Association journal called Advances is now working on, actually it's in progress, working on an issue highlighting the WSPH meeting from last year, and it actually should be out in the next several months with Erica Berman Rosenzweig is the guest editor of this issue, and it should give a really nice, well-rounded view of some of the topics that uh, we discussed above. And I think all of these references are really complementary to each other, and um, if you look at all of them, they, they really do round each other out. So this document may be very focused um, and very rigorous in terms of pharmacological therapy. These other documents may round out these things that we weren't able to put into this document. All right. Well, in our last few minutes, I just have a couple of remaining questions that I will direct to Dr. Elliott. So are there ongoing studies that you think we should be looking out for in the coming years that you might expect change future iterations of this guideline? Thanks very much, Megan. You know, the first comment I want to make actually is the updated guideline statement that we produced came at a critical time when they're really in the window between the last CHEST guideline in 2014 and the new March of 2019 guideline, there were four large pivotal studies that were published and and were incorporated into the 2019 guideline. Since that time, there are ongoing studies in a number of areas that I think are, are of interest to us, and many of those aim at addition of therapies to existing background therapy, which is the current environment that we find ourselves in. And maybe one of the you know, more interesting of these is a study that goes by the moniker Triton. It's a phase three trial that is looking now at triple combination therapy up front versus dual oral combination therapy. And if you put that in the context of the ambition study that Dr. Klinger said was the key study that drove an important advance in the guideline that we produced, now we're looking at upfront uh, masatentan, tadalafil with selexapag, an oral selective uh, IP prostacycline receptor agonist. 
versus Massatentan plus Tadalafil plus placebo. So a well-designed, randomized, prospective, uh, double-blind clinical trial. The study is designed to have an interesting primary endpoint, which is change in pulmonary vascular resistance over time. And I just mentioned that in the context of the um, strict methodology that, that was used for the ACCP guidelines, because we wouldn't have put PVR, perhaps, is the PICO question, and certainly most studies have focused either on six-minute walk, as we know, or on clinical worsening or clinical disease progression, uh, well-defined. So this study, I think, will be of interest to us as it comes forward, and I, and I just highlight that one, but I point out there are other studies, again, mostly looking at uh, changes in delivery systems or the addition of a, a medication to an existing background of therapy. Interesting. Yeah, I hope these trials are informative and can help our patients. So it seems, as we've discussed, that a lot of the recommendations in the current guideline are more on the line of ungraded and based on consensus, given the limitations in the sort of structural framework of how the guideline was developed, as we've already discussed. So where do you see the most opportunity for young investigators like myself to generate new evidence that will strengthen future guidelines? We've talked about a couple of the studies that are already ongoing, but where should we be looking in the future? Well, I, I wish I had the crystal ball for you, Megan. I, I don't know that I do, but uh, just a couple of comments. First, I think the guidelines actually are very helpful for young investigators in many ways. First, you know, you get to see the quality of the evidence and the science laid out and graded for its quality and methodology. Second, every time you as a young investigator see a statement ungraded or consensus-based, that provides an opportunity to look and see whether there's an opportunity to, to produce the science that will move that recommendation from ungraded and consensus-based to evidence-based with a you know, strong level of evidence. So in that regard, the current guideline statement provides a bit of a skeleton or a, a framework for young investigators to simply look and say, I'd be interested in trying to advance the knowledge here. I'm actually then, I'm going to change a little bit for you, Megan, and talk about maybe a, a longer view of all this and and that is the past, in my mind, is any sort of prologue to the future. There are some things to just think about. And, and one of those is to always keep your eye on the bench to bedside and bedside to bench because observations made at the bedside underlie many of these ungraded consensus-based recommendations. And conversely, discoveries made at the bench were often brought forward and this is, I guess, where my perspective comes in, to fuel the evidence-based therapies that we have now. For me, always the textbook example was prostacycline, which was studied by, you know, vascular biologists just trying to understand how blood could flow through tight little spaces, and they had no idea that there was a disease out there called primary pulmonary hypertension at the time, and it took Tim Higginbottom working at the Papworth Hospital to recognize that discovery and say, I wonder if this would help people with, again, what was then called primary pulmonary hypertension. So for, for young investigators like you, I'd say look at the current state of the field, look at the science that's coming out at the basic level, ask whether there's something there that could be brought to the patient's bedside, 
in the way of an effective therapy. And I, and I do think, certainly, uh, if we follow the cancer paradigm and what's going on in, in cancer right now, don't be surprised if, you know, molecular targets don't become important for the treatment of PAH in the future. So that may be, a, you know, a direction to look at, just as the generation before us looked at vasodilators. And, you know, most of our therapies have that background of being having been a vasodilator at one time or another. Now, the next thing I would say, if I have a minute, is I'd just say that, you know, the chest guidelines do provide a few direct suggestions, uh, one of which is, uh, and I'm going to read this, for who functional class three or four patients with unacceptable or deteriorating clinical status despite established PAH-specific therapy on two classes of therapy, we suggest a, a third drug class be added, but it, the, the guidelines are quick to point out that that hasn't really been studied. So there's an opportunity to be thinking about studies, and it, it actually says further studies are needed to determine the efficacy and safety of these combination therapies, patients with advanced disease, particularly those who can't receive parenteral prostanoids. So I think there are a number of areas for young investigators to, to begin to work, and, and the last maybe piece of advice I'd give you is find colleagues, you know, similar interest and talent as, as you have and, and start to collaborate with them and discuss. I can't tell you how fortunate I was, you know, to have colleagues at your stage in development with good ideas and, you know, we sort of gelled those together and a number of those people are on the field now that the pulmonary hypertension field is really a terrific community to work with. I think you'll find that. Thank you for all that great advice. Lots of opportunity and lots of things to think about moving into the future, it seems. So that was all the questions that I had. I wanted to open it up to the panel to see if there were any other thoughts that anyone had as we wrap things up here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you Megan. Thank you. Great thank you question. Megan, to bring us all back together again. Thank uh, you, guys. It was really thank fun talking thanks, with you. Megan. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Megan. Well, it's time to wrap up, so I want to thank you all again for this thoughtful discussion. I hope to see everyone at the ATS conference in Dallas where we can continue this conversation. I know I am looking forward to checking out all the great sessions related to pulmonary vascular disease. Once again, this is Megan Cyrilis for the ATS Breathe Easy podcast. See you next time.